There's virtually unlimited power in space to build Earth-like habitats for humanity that can be spread throughout the solar system to support a population of a trillion people. Human beings are fundamentally hunter-gatherers. We need a frontier, and we just happen to live at a time when that frontier is waiting, and we have the tech to make it happen. So I don't understand why people work on anything else. Hey, everybody. Welcome to New Space. We're a brand new podcast focused on what some people call the Silicon Valley in the sky. On this podcast, we're going to give you an exciting tour of all the cool things going on in New Space. There are so many people to meet, so many cool companies to learn about, so many amazing innovations that'll just blow your mind. I'm your host, John Severance, and this is episode one. We're standing by. Entry interface minus five minutes. Humanity's most ambitious fantasy is to live in space. And living in space might actually be closer than we think. One company, TransAstra, is making that possible. On today's podcast, we talked to Joel Sircell, the space industry's Lewis and Clark. Joel's company, TransAstra, is working on a really big idea to create rocket engines that actually run on water. But the bigger idea is actually building the transportation infrastructure that lays a critical foundation for life and eventually work in space. So first of all, what what does your company do? Because it's, it's really, really cool. <laughs> well, we think it's really, really cool too. And it's, it's a great place to work. The engineers are highly motivated for the company's vision and mission. So Transastra is a space resources and logistics company. So our mission is to build the transportation network in space that will enable massive space industrialization and space settlement. And we have very practical short-term plans to commercialize our technology mm -hmm. and a very ambitious roadmap that where uh, the sky is no limit for where we're going. So I, I was explaining this to someone this morning, actually. I said, I'm going to uh, interview Joe Sircell, uh later today. And I talked about your company and they thought that was like, who's going to use this? Who's going to fuel up in space? You know, how soon are we going to be working in space? You know, is this out there or why are you doing this right now? Right. So with any disruptive innovation, you have to create the market. So the Harvard professor, Clayton Christian, yep, Christensen, I think it is, who wrote the book, The Innovator's Dilemma, describes the difference between disruptive innovation and sustaining innovation. So sustaining innovation is every year Apple comes out with a new iPhone. It's got some new features. There's already a pre-existing market for that. So you don't have any chicken and egg issue to get it going. But for disruptive innovation, that's where you have a new invention that creates whole new businesses. And there's a psychological problem that people have in terms of getting their mind around how to make that happen. Okay. And so one of the keys to actually creating a disruptive innovation is to sort of shoehorn it in to existing systems so that it looks like a sustaining innovation. All right. So the disruptive innovation here, what, you know, which is our, our long range roadmap, this is where we're going, is really tapping into the asteroids and the moon as the ultimate source of material and resources for humanity. And that's very important. And we can talk about exactly why that's important and why that's the, the, the hugest, if hugest is a word, why that's the biggest, the biggest opportunity in history. Okay. But the problem is 
like people can't get their minds around it and there are no existing markets for it. So what do you do to start? Well, the first use of space resources as rocket propellant, and there's already a need for rocket propellant in space. So the materials that you would harvest from the moon or the asteroids to use as rocket propellant, well, the easiest one is water. Transaster has been working on the technology of water harvesting for a few years now. And I think a lot of people agree with us that we're the technological leader in that field. I mean, we've, we've, I think we've won more NIAC grants and contracts than anyone else. NIAC is the place in NASA for real swing for the fences, total breakthrough, change the art of the possible. And we've been very successful for it. So what we really want to do is leverage an existing market to create a bigger market. So the existing market for rocket propellant in space is to deliver satellites from where they are to where they need to go. Now, in 2021, that's a good size market. Independent market analysts peg it at about a billion dollars a year, potential total addressable market. That's not nothing. That's significant. That's enough to get mm. going. Yeah, that's um, great. Yeah. Now, that's based on launching a few thousand satellites a year into orbit, which is a lot. I mean, today, a number in the low thousands of satellites is launched into low Earth orbit every year. And keep in mind that as recently as five years ago, if there were a hundred satellites launched, that was a big deal. So the growth has already begun, but our internal market analysis says that for these big low earth orbit constellations, and we see lots of them coming in, there's going to be at least a hundred thousand satellites launched into orbit in the next 10 years. So the market is exponentiating. And these satellites are going to need to be delivered. See, rockets, like the ones that SpaceX and ULA and hopefully Blue Origin soon make, and lots of other competitors like Stoke and ABL and Rocket Lab, those rockets are great for getting satellites into orbit. And they're really based on an architecture from the 1950s and 60s when we first started to launch into space from ICBMs. But they're not so good for deploying constellations of hundreds or thousands of satellites because big rockets aren't good at dropping little packages off along the way. So what we need is a logistics vehicle that can carry lots of little satellites in the fairing of a fairly good sized rocket and then drop each of those little satellites exactly where it needs to go. That's the market that's emerging today. Now, in order to win a huge fraction of that market share, we are building our Worker B orbit transfer vehicle and our omnivore solar thermal rocket. So Worker B is a space tug. It can carry satellites into orbit, deliver them where they need to go, then importantly, stay in orbit. And then on subsequent launches, we can just launch water up as the propellant for Worker B and the satellites. And then it can refill our propellant tanks, grab the satellites from the rocket and then take them and deploy them. And once we're reusing those worker bees in space, the cost plummets and we've become even more cost effective. Now, worker bee blows away the competition in the here and now for delivering satellite constellations. And the reason is the omnivore engine can use virtually any fluid as propellant. It can run on water, it can run on hydrazine, it can run on ammonia, it can run on waste products from the space station. And Unlike some companies that are trying to do this with electric propulsion, electric propulsion is where you have a big solar array. It collects sunlight, turns it into electricity, and use that electricity to power a plasma device that accelerates the, the working fluid. 
this is what I did my PhD on at Caltech. I was critically involved in the first NASA application of electric propulsion in deep space called NSTAR. You know, it's really cool tech. The problem is solar arrays and all those electronics are super heavy and super expensive. And the engines only produce very small amounts of thrust. The omnivore engine, by contrast, just uses sunlight as power. We have a lightweight, inexpensive solar concentrator that concentrates the sunlight onto the engine, heats up the engine, and then because it's a simple heating process, you can use virtually any fluid as the propellant. And like a really great fluid to work is water, because everyone knows water is plentiful, cheap, and easy to work with. So we're going to start off with water as the propellant. But we're actually working with companies that are building propellant depots to be able to refill our propellant tanks from propellant depots, gas stations. And we'll be able to, the same omnivore engine can run on water and hydrazine. That's a very exciting possibility. It runs on hydrazine. It runs better than a monopropellant hydrazine system because it's augmented by all the sunlight. And on water, you get decent performance and water is cheap and easy to use. So what's going to happen is we're going to start using the omnivores to, and we think we're going to really dominate the space of uh, low earth orbit logistics. And that, that market was about a billion dollars last year. It's projected to be in excess of 5 billion by the end of 2025 and a total of probably $60 billion of addressable customer work over the next 10 years. And, you know, if we just get 5% of that, we're a unicorn. Unicorn is a fancy name that's used in Silicon Valley for companies that are worth more than a billion dollars. We, and we think that within the next three to five years, you know, we'll be capturing enough of that market that we'll be able to scale the company and go big. So that's a big valuation. So here's the thing. So in the short term, we're a logistics company delivering satellites, their orbital destination, creating a huge market for water and low earth orbit. And then our orbit transfer vehicles, our space tugs, the worker bees, will then become the backbone. And we can use those logistics vehicles to now fly out to the asteroids, mine the water from the asteroids, and turn the asteroids into orbiting propellant stations. As the Space Force and the DOD start to scale their operations, along with NASA in low Earth orbit and cislunar space, we see the market is growing far beyond those commercial projections that I've made. We're going to need hundreds and thousands of tons of water every year in space. And at that point, it just makes absolutely no sense to launch it up from the Earth on rockets. It's just so much more cost-effective to harvest it locally from asteroids. And then, so now we're harvesting the propellant in space. We've got high-performance space tugs that are carrying things around very inexpensively. Our financial analysis suggests that getting around in space in that world will be as cheap as air travel. Hmm. Wow. That's super exciting. And once it becomes as cheap as air travel to get around in space, it actually makes sense to go to the asteroids and harvest the precious metals in those asteroids rather than digging up the ground. And at that point, you're, you know, you're really off to the races for massive space industrialization. The costs start to really collapse. You know, experienced aerospace professionals who've been in the, in the business, you know, for decades, they just can't grok this. They can't get it. And I mean, think about it. Let's say you're an engineer at JPL and you've spent the last 30 years figuring out how to make highly reliable, very sophisticated spacecraft, like the rovers that are on Mars right now. Those rovers cost a million dollars a kilogram of engineering. Wow. A million dollars a kilogram. Whereas 
industrial products cost, you know, high-tech products cost a thousand dollars a kilogram. Automobiles are far cheaper than that. And if you compare the complexity of a typical low earth orbit satellite with the complexity of a modern car, the satellite is simpler and less sophisticated and should be cheaper than the car if you use equivalent manufacturing processes. And so once transportation cost gets down, there's no reason why space operations have to be fabulously expensive. And this is coming. This is a paradigm shift that people aren't getting. And as it comes, when, then when you're in space in that environment, every square kilometer of space at one AU from the sun where the earth is, has a gigawatt of solar power flowing through it. And that gigawatt of power can be collected using a thin film solar reflector that weighs a few thousand kilograms. Okay. So it becomes the cheapest source of energy known to man. We don't need fusion power. You know, a friend of mine said, if God meant for mankind to have fusion power, he would have put a massive fusion reactor at the center of the solar system, which is what he did. So we will have fusion power and it's a, it's a hydrogen fusion that's going on. So there's virtually unlimited power in space. And there's enough material in the asteroids to build habitats for humanity that have a carrying capacity a thousand times that of the Earth. These are not, you know, space stations that you'd go nuts living in. These are Earth-like habitats, you know, with natural spaces in them that just happen to be inside out. They spin for gravity, but they can be kilometers across, and each one can house tens of thousands of people, maybe later hundreds of thousands of people. And there's enough resources in the asteroids to build worlds like that, that can be spread throughout the solar system to support a population of a trillion people. Mm. That's a very optimistic view of the future. And we really have to do it. You know, the biosphere is a delicate balance between plants and animals that, you know, consume sunlight and through photosynthesis to produce sugar that the animals eat. You know, everyone learned about that in high school, but we have a situation where the mass of humanity on the planet is now greater than the mass of any other animal on the planet. And if you look at Homo sapiens and our livestock and pets, we vastly outweigh the animal kingdom, the natural animal kingdom on the planet. So the balance between plants and animals is being completely distorted by humans and our livestock. And if you, and if you think about it, you know, internal combustion engines burning fossil fuels, they play the the role of animals on super steroids, you know, dumping chemicals like carbon and other chemicals into the atmosphere, really accelerating that process. And we've gotten to the point where we've filled every ecological niche on the planet. Human beings are fundamentally hunter gatherers. We need a frontier and we just happen to live at a time when that frontier is waiting and we have the tech to make it happen. So I don't understand why people work on anything else. So then your, your propulsion that is within the, the, the launch vehicle. So you're um, taking Leo satellites or you're taking so, lower. So initially what we'll do is we, we basically take our worker bee and um, we fold up the solar reflectors on it and we, we work with our customers and we get our customer satellites and we mount them on top of the worker bee. And then the worker bee gets mounted inside the launch ferry. It could either be a dedicated worker bee Fully loaded with all of its hardware is something under a thousand kilograms, including its propellant and the payload it carries. So there's there are some small launch vehicles, and we have partnerships with with some of some of the small launch vehicle companies. 
where we would then, we could carry as many as a hundred small CubeSat scale satellites into orbit on a single worker beat, take them up there and then spread them into different orbits using our significant Delta V capability, our velocity change capability on the vehicle. Or worker B is compatible with a ride share, either on a Falcon 9 or an EELV on a ULA vehicle. And later it'll be compatible with New Glenn, which is the Blue Origin large launch vehicle that they're building, or Starship. And Worker B1 is a relatively small system designed, it has a total payload capacity of up to 200 kilograms. So it can deliver a 200 kilogram satellite to its orbital slot, or say four 50 kilogram satellites, or, you know, 10, 20 kilogram class satellites. And you know, there's different ways to slice and dice and package it. We, we looked at delivering a whole communications and GPS like satellite constellation into orbit around the moon. And we can put eight 200 kilogram comsats in orbit around the moon on a single Falcon 9 launch and deliver it in the matter. We also looked at, we had another customer who wanted to put 96 small satellites. These are 10, 20 kilogram satellites into widely varying orbits in low earth orbit. And each worker bee has significant Delta B capability. So we can actually launch 24 worker bees on a single Falcon 9 and deliver a whole constellation of nearly a hundred satellites through a wide range of inclinations. We're not, we're, the, the inclination change that we can do is quite substantial. And they can essentially get global coverage with a full constellation in one Falcon 9 launch, deliver the whole constellation in a matter of weeks. So it's really an impressive capability. The cool thing about the omnivore thruster is it's cheap because it uses water as propellant. It's very inexpensive to build. It's fast because it doesn't have these big, heavy solar arrays that electric propulsion systems have. And we'll be building a lot of them and have a manufacturing process to do this. So we think we'll be able to get it to be very reliable. And we're dotting our I's and crossing our T's with things like export regulations, making sure we're setting up those capabilities and from the start in a way that's uh, completely compatible with U.S. export regulations and FCC regulations and all that kind of good stuff, FAA. Got it. Cool. So you, you said that the, the worker bee, that, that then stays in space? Yeah. So we're actually working with industrial partners. I'm not fully at liberty to talk about this. Okay. Uh, for standards, for docking and resupplying our worker bees. So, I mean, this is a vehicle that's, you know, most spacecraft in low Earth orbit have design lives of three years or so. We're designing worker bees to have a nominal design life of three years. So they go and do their mission and then they stay in space. And so subsequently, rather than carrying our customer payloads to space, we will build a carrier vehicle that's just a propellant tank that it's a propellant tank and carrier for our customer spacecraft that launches into space. And then we go dock with that and use the propellant in, in the propellant tank that was brought up and our customer satellites. And then we don't have to launch another worker bee into space. We use a pre-existing worker bee that's already pre-deployed in space, waiting for the launch vehicle. And uh, that becomes a much more cost-effective approach. And that's a huge advantage. So let me just get one thing clear. So you got a rocket, let's say it's like F Falcon 9 going up, right? Yep. And then it's launching LEO satellites into space. And yep. so that, you know, the hatch opens and in my mind, the satellite just sort of gives birth to a constellation. I'm just trying to um, understand. So what is, what is the worker bee? What technology is the worker bee re replacing or what process? Oh, so 
so so unfortunately, customers have no good choices right now. They either have to carry their own propulsion system, which is expensive, and they each have to have their own propulsion system. That's expensive. Or they have to hire a small launch vehicle to take them right to their orbital destination, but on a dollar per kilogram basis, that's not cost effective. And so they're kind of between a rock and a hard place. By the way, another option that we have for some customers is that we can actually um, integrate an omnivore propulsion module with their vehicle. So there are some cases where you really want to have your own onboard propulsion to deliver you to your orbital destination and then station keep. And because we'll, we're making a lot of omnivores, the recurring and because they're just based on water propellant, very simple, the recurring cost can be very low. So we can actually sell the omnivore propulsion module to a customer and work with them to integrate it with their vehicle. And then in some cases, they'll use that in, you know, in an organic way rather than using worker B as a, a space type. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. So then when you're, when they're, the worker bees up in space, I mean, it's brought the satellites to their orbit and then it's hanging out in space, staying there. What asteroids does it go to? Like, what are some of the nearby asteroids or asteroid belts, you know, can it visit to get water? Yeah. So, so the asteroids that we would go to are not asteroids that you would have heard of. They're not named asteroids. So, so the issue here is that there are about a billion asteroids in the solar system that are big enough to be useful for engineering applications. And those asteroids are spread all the way from really close to the sun. Like they're like the closest asteroids to the sun that have been observed are just a few times the diameter of the sun in distance from the sun, very tight orbits around the sun, all the way out beyond the orbit of Pluto. Most of the asteroids are in the main belt between Mars and Jupiter. There's a class of asteroids called NEOs, near earth objects. Mm-hmm. that approach Earth orbit. All of the asteroids that we would go after as propellant sources in in the next few decades would be NEOs. And there's there's a class of asteroids that's a, a tiny subset of the NEO population that we've identified as the ones that we really want to go at, after. We know about a few of those asteroids enough to start the business, but we have to find more of them. We know statistically where they are. It's a little bit like prospecting for um, oil and other natural resources on the earth. Geologists make statistical models and they know how big the reserve is. So if all this is working up there in space, what's the, what's the big impact? Well, the big impact of what space can offer humanity is moving our mineral resource collection off the planet. And as we automate manufacturing, We have unlimited mineral resources and unlimited energy in space. So from that, we can have robots that do manufacturing. And initially, they'll they'll manufacture satellites for use in space. Pretty soon, as the internet backbone moves to low Earth orbit, it makes no sense to have data centers on the ground processing data on the ground because you want data centers to be on the internet backbone. And most of the data that's generated on Earth for understanding the state of the planet will be generated in space from remote sensing satellites. So the data processing to make sense of that will be moved into space. And those data processing centers and those satellites will be manufactured in space from asteroid resources. And over time, very, very soon, it will make much more sense to generate electricity in space rather than on the ground. Oh, that's really cool. 
first principles, physics and engineering tells us that telecom should be in space, right? Putting cables under the ocean with fiber optics, you know, this, first of all, the speed of light in fiber is 1.52 times slower than the speed of light in free space. So if you have two networks that are competing for ping for banking transactions or gaming or, or video conferencing, the space network is going to win. Second, uh, you have to lay the infrastructure and dig holes and so on all ar around the earth. And as you grow to more, more billions of people connecting, that's just ridiculous. It needs to go through the air and, and the vacuum. And so you can connect moving objects and so on. But it's a matter of scale. If, if you only have a few users who are using Spacecom, you can't have a big enough satellite constellation to get good coverage on the ground. But if you step up to the fact that, no, we're moving the internet backbone and the last mile problem to space, then it immediately you say, well, then I need tens of thousands of satellites. And when you have tens of thousands of satellites, you get good global coverage. And the problem of the urban canyon and line of sight starts to go away. And, and, you know, and so it's going to happen. And then once the internet backbone and the last mile problem come from space, then global sense making comes from space. And every conceivable sensor will be in space on thousands of satellites like observing every aspect in every wavelength, both active and passive. And so we will know more about the natural environment of the earth and human activities on the earth than we ever knew before. And that will allow us to optimize industrial processes and make everything so much more efficient. But the quantity of data being produced is, you know, is prodigious. It's got, and it has to be processed locally in space. Then you just bring down the data. So, you know, the information to the information network that connects humanity to humanity and helps us make sense of the world will be, you know, constellations skimming over the surface of the earth in low earth orbit. And that will create a market for orbital logistics that will cause us to reach out to the asteroids for re for supplying propellant. And then once we have that next you know, next level orbital logistics supplied from above it will be so cheap to get around that it will make more sense to harvest our precious metals, our strategic materials, our semiconductor dopant, dopants from the asteroids. And then it's going to be like, well, why in heck would we bring it down to the earth to manufacture? We'll just manufacture it in space where all the energy is. And so that will be massive for cleaning up the biosphere. And then at that point you say, well, why would you live on the earth? That's nutty. <laughs> All the, all, the, all the resources and all the action is in space. So people will move into space to be where industry is. And, and then there's no limit to population growth if you consider a trillion people to be no limit. So, and then it'll make, and then as you know, people start building worlds in space using robotic factories, basically turning asteroids into worlds. And that's a thousand years of human exponential growth. That was really, really amazing. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to episode one. Next up, we're going to talk to Dave Bettinger, who heads up Spacelink, and they're putting the internet in space. Join us then. Thank you for listening.